you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. get into trouble when I make these big, bold declarations of this or that, because inevitably somebody calls me on it, and, and, and it's more nuanced, uh, and I get that, but I have decided there are exactly two types of people, uh, no more or no less. There are movie people and TV people. Who is a TV person? Okay, Movie people? A lot of you didn't raise your hand, so you have to pick one. Are you a movie person or are you a TV person? Okay. I see a lot of house divided here. Um, Felsha loves a TV show. My wife uh, can have 20 series that she is, uh, finds beloved, and she's just waiting for the next season, and, and she can keep up with and. and they're not all my favorites, but I'm fine. We can do TV, right? I, I can watch these shows with her. But then I love movies. I love uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I love the Star Wars universe. I love the Harry Potter universe. I love these big movies that take a long time. And I'm finding that our family is divided. Uh, Josiah, uh, he's there with, with Felsha. Give me a quick 20-minute episode that the tension is fairly well resolved in, and I can come back another day for a new set of things. I know, I know Ross and Rachel, we were wondering if they were going to get together. I know we still don't know who shot JR. But by and large, TV shows resolve themselves every episode, right? Uh, you get some enduring things, but by and large, they, they get their resolution. Uh, if you go watch the best TV lists of all time, there's always two shows on the top five, Alias and The West Wing. Because they, every episode, would about two-thirds of the way through and then give you the next tension that was going to draw you forward until the next episode. Uh, these are two of the most binge TV shows because people would get uh, kind of that alias tension going and they'd just watch the whole thing. I love movies that have the tension the whole time and you're just uh, longing for them to resolve and to, to come through, but you, you, you're there for two hours, two and a half hours. Felsha and I just went and saw the 25th anniversary Titanic. That's... That was a weird look about Titanic. Kathy was like, hmm, Titanic. It, it was a lot more intense than I remembered it from 25 years ago. But it's this whole tension just for this whole time, right? Even though you know exactly what's going to happen. I mean, those of you who like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the pattern has started to become pretty predictable for these movies. Right, Amelia? Brad? Am I right? But they're still incredible as they hold this tension. Uh, we find this in literature, too. Our own Georgia Stamper can write an essay about a bridge in Owen County, and I care more about this bridge than anything I've ever cared about in my life. She can take a few words and create a tension for us. That's pretty rare in short-form writing. Uh, a good friend of mine is David Arnold. He writes young adult novels, and they're 450 pages that pull you through the whole thing with this tension that you just long for the end. I never Googled the ending of books. I never Google the ending of movies. I don't go like 
oh, man, I missed the opening week of Ant-Man Quantumania. Let me see what happened. A TV show? I'll go to Wikipedia in a heartbeat. Right? Uh-huh. Some of y'all are not along. I'm figuring you out. You, you can just go to Wikipedia and find out, do Ross and Rachel end up together? You can, you can just do that. I need you to all pretend you're movie people today. Okay? That you're... You're, you're enthralled by tension that holds for a while. Because so many of uh, the main sections of our Bible are long tension moments. Often we reduce them to a flannel graph that lets us get our resolution quickly, right? We're going to deal with this one particular Abraham story or this one particular story. But by and large, we have these epic journeys throughout Scripture. We have uh, the story of Abraham and then kind of the rest of the story of Israel we have the story of Jesus and then the story of the church. And these are epic, uh, epic narratives held together through little moments uh, in time. They're big and they're whole and the end is not always apparent when you start at the beginning of it. It's, it's like sitting down for that very first time watching that three-hour movie and knowing that the resolution isn't coming in the next page probably. I'm sure our, our Georgia Stamper could write a story of Abraham that would take two pages and it would enthrall you, but that's not what we received in our scriptures. We received chapter after chapter after chapter of Abraham's story. And it features prominently throughout. Abraham's story is a subset of storytelling, uh, the, the, journey, the epic journey. Lord of the Rings. Hmm... Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, um, The Grapes of Wrath, if we're doing literature. Uh, I think these epic stories where we're journeying through something and, and getting towards an end. And we do a short change to the story if we try to resolve it too early. It would have been nice if Abraham's story was, hey, Abraham, go, and I'm going to bless you and make you a nation. And we flip to the next page, and boom, it's a great nation. That's not the story. Marilyn, can you do me a favor? Can you stand up? All right, can you walk back to Brad? Okay. Okay. That did not take long, did it? All right, we are right about Genesis 12. We have just finished the primeval uh, creation narratives and the ancient Near Eastern cosmology. We've worked through uh, how Israel understood God and creation, and we've gotten through Noah and the flood, and we flip the page, and it says, God appeared to Abram. So take one chapter's worth of walking towards me, Marilyn. Okay, that's, that's about a chapter. We got like 25 of them to go, so, so don't go too fast. I want you and your father's household to go where I'm sending you. Abraham is clearly the oldest male left in this family. He's got his household, his father's household, the, uh, the son of his brother Lot, and they're called to go, and he goes. He goes just a little bit farther, and they land in Egypt. We're familiar with this Abraham story in Egypt, right? 
Uh, oh, there's famine. We've, I'm worried about what's going to happen. This, this Sarah over here, she's my, she's my sister. Um, please, don't, please don't kill us. She's my sister. Um, and then we take just a couple more steps forward. This way, Marilyn. And we get to Genesis 15, where God ratifies his covenant with Abraham. He uh, tells Abraham in this, this vision dream sequence, uh, gather together these animals, cut them in half, uh, and set them up for our covenant-making ceremony. And then the blood is flowing through this stream, and the, the flaming pot, that is Yahweh, passes through saying, if, we, if, if the covenant is broken, may it be like these dead animals for me. Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to make you a blessing. You'll be a great people. And Abraham is like, but I have no children. I have no family. My servant is going to take my name. And take another step forward. And God says, I promise. I promise you will have a son. It's declared that Abraham is righteous because he says, Okay, God. He is declared righteous. Take a couple steps more forward, Marilyn. So we have a, these next couple chapters where it is this uh, unveiling of how God is faithful even when Abraham and Sarah cannot get it. They are past the prime child-rearing years of their lives, uh, and they are now wrestling with how does God's promises going to come true. They take it in their own hands, and she's like, hey, uh, we got Hagar over here. You should have a child with her because she can still have a child. And so they have a baby, Ishmael, and and uh, this creates all kinds of problems. Take another step or two forward, Marilyn. Uh, at this point, uh, God uh, is still working in this family. Sarah, far past her child-rearing years, becomes pregnant, and they give birth to Isaac. Let's get about halfway through the, the aisle at this point. It's about halfway through the Abraham story. We journey with them together and all that this is going to be about. We have kind of Isaac coming of age. We have this great tension between Hagar and Sarah, which results in what does Abraham do? He banishes Hagar and Ishmael from their presence, and they go out in the wilderness, certainly to die. Come a few more steps, Marilyn. God shows up and promises them that they too will be a great people, uh, but that God will also continue to work through Abraham and Isaac. Uh, Hagar and Ishmael are delivered, and we really turn to the Isaac story. Isaac and uh, Abraham kind of do their family thing. This is where it gets hazy in my details. Uh, they kind of come along, and then we get to this famous story. Let's take a pretty big step for this one. The binding of Isaac. God says, hey, Abram, all right, by this point, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you find beloved, and I want you to take him up to the mountain Bind him and offer him as sacrifice. This is not unusual in the ancient Near East. This is common practice for things as simple as we need rain. Uh, the fact that Yahweh does not demand your firstborn child at every turn is a, uh, a kindness and grace that is uh, unheard of amongst the deities of this, this place. This God is not angry, and yet now he is asking Abraham to take and to bind and to sacrifice this one that he loves. And so, just a little farther forward, Marilyn. They go, 
and they go up the mountain, and they're halfway up, and Isaac says, hey, Dad, where's the goat? That's a great question to ask at this point, right? Uh, and he's like, don't worry, son, God will provide. They get the rest of the way up the mountain. He binds him up. He is wrapped up in rope and laying on this altar they have constructed, and he is still trusting his father, and Abraham is still trusting his God, and he lifts his knife as if to sacrifice his son, and, and the messenger of God goes, Abram, wait! Books after books after books have been spilled about what you do with this text, because this is a little bit of a weird text, isn't it? We don't like the idea of a testing God. We don't like the idea that this would even be something our God would ask, and yet it is, it is held here as this major turning point in the Abram story. God provides a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. They unbind Isaac, and they do their sacrifice. Come on forward just a little bit, Marilyn. We have now seen how uh, righteous uh, Abram is. We have now kind of begun to move to the Isaac story Sarah dies of old age. Abraham does, as men often do, and quickly takes another wife and has more kids with her. Uh, he fades off and dies, and it's now the Isaac story. Thank you, Marilyn. It's an epic journey for Abraham that begun with one question. Will you go? And he said, Sure and it was credited as righteousness. And he gets it wrong for a lot of the rest of the story. At times, he doesn't look and say, where is Yahweh? He doesn't get to Egypt in the famine and go, hey, Yahweh, what should I do here? Instead, he says, hey, this is my sister. He get down the road, and he is uh, unsure what to do, and he keeps coming up with plans on his own, but he keeps going. And God keeps pursuing him time and time and time again. God said, will you go? And without the end in sight, he went. This is like when Frodo and Bilbo Baggins and the whole group get their rings, and the, the, the ring in the beginning of the Lord of the Rings, and then they're tasked with go and getting destroyed, and they go. Abraham went, and he trusted God. We move from the epic of Israel to the epic of Jesus. It had been easy for Jesus to come and make a bold public declaration using God powers in some way to go, boom, and they all understood that he was God incarnate and uh, could take over your minds and make you, everyone believe, right? He could do this. That is not the way God chose to reveal God's self in Christ into the world. And so we have this next epic journey Y'all are worried I'm getting ready to ask somebody else to step in the back and walk their way up, aren't you? We have this story that we have so very little of and yet still fills great space in our scriptures. This thing that really doesn't treat hardly any of Jesus' childhood other than this early exodus, this return to Israel and one temple scene. And then we flip the page and Jesus is doing miracles at weddings. He's healing people left and right. He's calling disciples. And people don't get it. They know that he is different, but they don't understand. And so they start following, and they make tons of mistakes. Does this pattern sound familiar? Jesus says, come and follow me, and they do. And at every turn, they mess up. 
Our gospel text today is uh, John chapter 3. It's the story of Nicodemus, a Pharisee who comes to Jesus in the dark of the night, going, are you, are you him? Are you the one they talked about? Are you the one they promised? Surely you are, teacher. We've seen you do all these miracles. And Jesus did not give a simple answer. He didn't say, yep, I'm the Messiah. He said, surely you must know that you must be born again. You must uh, be born of water and the flesh. And then Nicodemus like, hey, what? I, I've, I've got to go back into my mother's womb. And Jesus is like, come on. You have to be born anew again above from some kind of new birth moment. And Nicodemus doesn't seem to have a moment there. The story doesn't say, and Nicodemus understood it all and he was uh, healthy, wealthy, and wise or whatever. But we find Nicodemus two more steps down in the epic Jesus journey narrative. Uh, a little while longer in Jesus' ministry, he has been ruffling feathers at every turn. And they're ready to deal with him. And the Sanhedrin, this powerful group in charge, says, uh, let's, let's, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's wipe him out. And Nicodemus says, uh, let's let him be. If he's of God, uh, he deserves a fair chance. He deserves a good hearing. And then Nicodemus fades off into the sunset. And we hear the rest of the Jesus story. He evades the Pharisees for a while. He, he disappears from the leaders. He goes away. He comes back. He goes away. He comes back. Three times goes away and comes back. And then eventually he dies for our sins. And who shows up to take care of the body? Not the 12 who have been right there the whole time, but the women and Joseph of Arimathea. And Somebody say, Nicodemus, don't leave me. Nicodemus, thank you. He shows up with 75 pounds of myrrh and nard to anoint the body of Jesus. This is the amount of myrrh and nard you would bring for the king of Israel dying. And he is coming with all his unsureness and all the things that he has seen and all the times that he has not understood. And he's coming to anoint this one. He didn't have it all figured out. He didn't have all the answers. But he kept lifting his eyes up and looking to the one who seemed to to the one who is the one, to the one who invited him to a new birth. The scriptures flip to the next epic journey, and it's the journey of the church, which is this journey that is still unfolding, right? Uh, we, we get this beautiful thing because we get all these epistles where Paul and James and whoever wrote Hebrews and, and John and Peter, and, and they're dealing with their churches in the first century in ways that, that are clearly pastoral moments with some folks who are struggling, who, who have lifted their eyes to assent to this belief in Jesus, but are still getting it wrong. They're arguing about all kinds of things. They're making mistakes time after time. They're not getting it right, but they keep trusting God. And then we get Revelation tacked on the end, and it's this whole fun thing that we spent a whole semester talking about last semester, and it's just, it just keeps coming up. But it's this picture of what comes at the end of our epic journey. And so we sit in this epic journey that is unfolding today, this one where we can draw upon the story of Abraham and, and this idea that I will go where God sends me, and that be enough. This story of Jesus who says, uh, come to me. I'll offer you a new birth. And that'd be enough. We can enter into this journey where Paul says, it is hard. You don't have to earn God's love through your behavior, but your behavior needs to change. Um, through uh, this journey of the church where at every turn uh, we make plenty of mistakes. 
but we're invited to lift our eyes back to God. Harper and Amelia uh, are going to hand out a card. Um, I debated all week about what the takeaway is from this text, and I think I think what God left with me, and I hope is left with you, is, is you don't have to have it all figured out and have the ending in mind before you start. And you don't have to know where this is all going if you're partway through your journey. You have to simply lift your eyes. Our psalm today is Psalm 121, and, and uh, it starts, I raise my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? This is the task of the epic journey, right? Uh, to find uh, where help comes from. I am sure for many of you, you still have questions of the faith. There are things you still are wrestling with and trying to sort out. There are still uh, discipleship things that are deep in your uh, working out. I'd invite you to lift your eyes to the hills, to the one who does not faint or grow weary, to the one who stays up, uh, when you are facing the storms of life. Whether you're a step away from holiness and sanctification or you aren't sure how you even got in here this morning, lift your eyes. If you are uh, excited and in love with God and thrilled with what the church is doing and you can't wait to figure out what is next, lift your eyes to the hills. You are frustrated and hurt by the ways of uh, folks within uh, your church recently or in the past. Lift your eyes to the hills. We don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to be, uh, have the end completely in sight. For we can trust in the one who does not faint or grow weary. The one who uh, met Nicodemus. The one who poured out his spirit upon the church. And the one who will draw near to us today. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, will you show us what it is to lift our eyes uh, in the midst of this journey we're on? Uh, to trust you fully, even when so often we don't see the answers to what we're looking for. Lord, make your presence known in our midst and fill us with grace in a mighty way that we might go forth from this place just a little more confident lifting our eyes to you. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.